Amen. Well, I am excited about our message this morning. Um, I don't remember the last time I've preached on this subject, but the Lord's really spoken my heart about it. And um, if you would get ready and open your Bible to the first chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 finds Jesus freshly resurrected from the dead, and he's been meeting with his disciples, and he has a final gathering with them outside of Jerusalem, and he's speaking to them, and this is the last uh, public appearance that Jesus makes with, with his apostles, with his disciples. And the Bible tells us there's about 500 in that crowd that, uh, that Jesus is meeting with and speaking with, and they see him ascend up into heaven. And I, I want you to listen to what happens in this scene, then we're going to get into the message. Acts 1, 6 through 11. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Jesus replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem throughout Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth after saying this he was taken up in a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him as they strained to see him rising into heaven two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing and staring up into heaven? Jesus has been taken up from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Amen. As the first Christians receive their mission, assignment from Jesus, and they watch him ascend up into heaven. Two angels are sent by God to speak to them, and what they tell them is going to put the entire mission of the gospel in a context for them, and that is simply, Jesus will return. I want you to say it with me, Jesus will return. That was so prominent that referring to Jesus' second coming, Martin Luther said, there are two days in my calendar, just two, today and that day. We have today and we have the day of his return. The gospel is literally anchored in the reality of Jesus' return. And as a follower of Christ, you are held in place by the truth that, number one, the world is never going to heal itself. It's never going to right its wrongs or solve its problems. Number two, therefore, we, as the followers of Christ, must, one, be, in, be his influence upon society. Number two, lead people to him. And number three, care for them. Once we lead them to him, care for them. 
until he returns. And when he returns, as the king of kings, Jesus will right all wrongs. And so when Jesus returns, he will right all wrongs. And this message that the angels spoke to them as they beheld Jesus go up, after Jesus' very last words to them were, you shall receive power, you shall be my witnesses. Here where you live and around the face of the earth, the angels put all of that in context and say, Jesus is coming back. This message was enshrined in an ancient Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. How many of you are familiar with the phrase Maranatha? When Kathy and I first came to Jesus almost, almost 50 years ago, everybody knew the word Maranatha, and everyone knew it meant the Lord comes, or come, Lord. And so the early Christians, the first Christians used that word. The angels said, Maranatha, the Lord is returning. The Lord is coming back. And so those first Christians, those early Christians, they used to greet one another with Maranatha. When they greeted one another and they saw one another, they would say Maranatha. When they left one another, they would say Maranatha. They, they opened up and they closed all of their meetings with Maranatha. He is coming. He is coming. And it was an encouragement in the face of their adversity that they were living as, as a persecuted uh, church and as, as, uh, as a church that was, that was being, um, uh, that was living in adversity. And so they would encourage one another, constantly submerging their thinking in the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. Now the Jewish people also had a word for hundreds of years that they would greet one another with. How many of you know what that word was? It was the word shalom. We, we see it used today, shalom, in greeting and saying goodbye and saying hello to one another, shalom. And how many of you know what shalom means? What does it mean? It means peace. It also carries a secondary meaning, which means blessing. So when we call the Lord Jehovah Shalom, we're saying you are the Lord of peace. We're all saying you're the Lord of blessing because, because God's blessing brings peace. It ends conflict. It brings stability. Think of all that peace is. So the Jews would greet one another with Shalom, but the early Christians set aside that greeting and replaced it with Maranatha. And they replaced it with Maranatha because that was the that was the greeting, that was the word, that was the contextual thought that the angels gave to the disciples as they received their mission for Jesus Christ. That context was Maranatha. Not only the Lord is coming, but an urge and a prayer. Come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. And so the reason they did that is because they knew that shalom had already come, that the world would never know peace outside of receiving Jesus. And so they, they set aside shalom for Maranatha for that reason that true peace only comes through Jesus coming. And, and also, rejecting Jesus, you forfeit peace. You lose peace. If you reject Jesus, you reject peace and you lose peace. So Maranatha, Maranatha is the foundation of the Christian faith. 
And in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, don't imagine that I've come to bring peace on earth, but I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. And the reason he was saying that is because unless you receive me, you have no peace. And I did not come to make the world a peaceful place because it cannot be peaceful unless it's under Jesus, the King of Kings. And so they, they had that upgraded focus from Shalom to Maranatha. I'd like to see Maranatha restored to the church today. I wanna to refer to this as I open it up this morning to Maranatha consciousness which means living, living towards Jesus' return, living for his coming, living for his return. So I wanna call it Maranatha consciousness. Maranatha consciousness is the foundation of the Christian life. It puts everything into perspective and guides how we live. And it is the real motivation for obedient faith. Hebrews chapter 10 says, and verse 24 and 25. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our fellowship together in our own meetings, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. You know, when you begin to study it, you realize that the biggest majority of commands and exhortations, not only in the Gospels, throughout the epistles, were put in the context of because Jesus is coming. So we should be exhorting one another because Jesus is coming. There's the motivation. There is that context for obedient faith. When people live with Maranatha consciousness, they live in obedient faith. It propels them to love and to good works and to exhort one another. It brings with it, Maranatha brings a sense of community to the church. And so people that just drop out of church and quit fellowshipping and feel no conviction about it, um, all of a sudden, once they recapture that Maranatha spirit, they get themselves back into fellowship because they realize if I'm living for Christ's coming, I need to be part of the bride functioning and active you see, when people drop out, they don't come to church anymore, and they stay out of church, it's an indication that they have lost the foundation of the gospel, and they see Christianity simply as a religion in the world. It doesn't mean that their faith in Jesus isn't real, but the context of their faith is in Jesus is, well, we're just here until Jesus kind of comes back. They don't have that Maranatha zeal, which is we're living towards his coming, which means we have to behave and live a certain way. And the first thing that God deals with them about is fellowshipping and binding themselves together in fellowshipping so they can exhort themselves to love and to good works. When you lose your Maranatha focus, it takes your eyes off of Jesus' goal and sets worldly goals as your priority. Every time Christians back away from, cool down, they lose their, their ambition to live for the Lord's coming, they begin to drift into worldly goals. Not necessarily sinful or wrong goals, but, but they just naturally live as though things are gonna go on forever. 
They see their lives simply as, well, I've got 80 years or 90 years. They see their lives only in that context. They don't see their lives as a historic footprint walking towards the coming of Jesus. They don't see themselves as hastening and bringing the Lord's coming back. They don't see themselves as part of that. They simply see themselves as, oh, I'm a redeemed you know, sinner, saved by grace, and living in this world. So the world becomes uh, disproportionately important to them. And life in the world, your jobs, your families, the things that go on in the world, these things we talk about, they are important, no doubt. But but the thing that really lifts them up to the proper perspective and gives them the right importance is that the king is returning. And therefore, because he's coming, certain things are going to happen. And certain things that are happening now are going to, are going to be intersected when he comes, and we're going to want to be found on the right side of that intersection. Somebody say, praise the Lord. You know, until modern times, most believers look forward to Maranatha. They look forward to the Lord's return as deliverance from poverty, hardship, and oppression. Because up until modern times, life on earth for most people was not the pleasant plethora of options and prosperity that we live in in our society. We live in an extremely unique condition in the 6,000 years of human history. We live in an extremely opulent, if you can believe it, even the poor among us have options and freedoms that most of the millions and millions of humans that have gone before us and lived on the face of the earth never had and dreamed of having. And so in the days gone by, Maranatha was the focus and the hope of most Christians. Come, Lord, and end this misery, this poverty, end this these wars and the conflict and the hopelessness, the lack of options that I have in this, they look forward to Jesus coming. Today, in a somewhat carnal sense, a lot of those things that we equate with prosperity and peace, we take for granted, and they are here among us. And it's very easy to live for them. And and so keep your Maranatha focus, and keep yourself pure and on task. Maranatha focus, the Lord is coming, keeps you on task, praise the Lord. You know, Christians today, you seldom hear messages about Jesus coming. We don't talk about his coming. It's not on our radar. Most Christians don't think about Jesus is coming back. It's not there in their bucket list. It's not there in their top 10 things of importance. And so they, they, they uh, barely think about their lives in terms of Jesus coming, much less yearn for his return. But in, in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, John writes, Beloved, Now we are God's children. It has not yet been disclosed what we shall be hereafter, but we know that when he comes and is manifest, we shall resemble and be like him, for we shall see him just as he really is. And everyone who has this hope 
resting on him, purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. So you see, the secret to being a child of God now and connecting with what God is going to make us into is looking for his coming, living for and loving that coming. Because that is where I'm going to evolve into what God has really called me to be. So everyone who has this hope in themselves upon his coming, this hope of Jesus coming, purifies. So there's a purifying effect upon your life if you live a Maranatha conscience. Maranatha conscience brings peace to your life because our eyes, when we live a Maranatha conscience, our eyes are on eternal things as we live in the turmoil of a material world. The material world is a tumultuous place filled with cares and anxieties and turmoils. You know, um, because one out of every five days is a good day, we tend to think, well, no, life's good. We, we tend to forget that four out of five days, you know, we're frustrated or angry or, or just not directed and, and uh, trying to, you know, grab hold of the meaning of life, even as Christians, and, and find the motivation to move forward. But not so. When you have Maranatha consciousness, your eyes are on eternal things. And the turmoil of the material world around you has, has much less of an impact. You see the shallowness and the foolishness of it, and it doesn't bother you nearly as much. Maranatha consciousness also brings eternal hope and a sense of comfort in the face of the anxieties and the injustices that you are challenged with every day. When you're challenged by circumstances and you find yourself anxious or, or even injustices begin to touch your life, it's a horrible feeling if you don't know Maranatha, if you don't know Jesus is coming. You feel like, well, where is there going to be sanity? Where is there going to be goodness? Where, where is there going to be a resolution? But when your eyes are on the fact that the resolution is coming, hallelujah, glory to God, it makes a difference. In 2 Peter 3, 10 through 12, Peter said to us, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When it comes, the heavens will disappear with a horrific noise, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze, and the earth and every deed done in it will be laid bare. Since all these things are to melt away in this manner, since Maranatha, what sort of people must you be conducting your lives in holiness and godliness while waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So there's the focus for Christians. We should be hoping, living, waiting, and as we are, what kind of people shall we be? You know, the argument of Christian behavior, Christian character, and, and what kind of positions should Christians take, you know, a lot of that argument becomes unnecessary when you live a Maranatha life because it informs you. It, it, it locks your thinking onto the fact the answer is not here. The answer's coming. Hallelujah. And you realize that uh, you're hastening the coming of the Lord. I, you know, no one knows the day or the hour, 
But I do believe that if you take all of these admonitions about the Lord's coming, there is the chance of making the case that a yearning church that is looking, praying, and calling for the Lord's return will bring him from heaven back to the earth. And there is a day, there is an hour, the Father knows what it is, but I want to tell you that I don't think that the Lord is going to come for a world that is entirely and completely indifferent, and a church also that is entirely and completely indifferent. The persecution of the apocalypse and the difficulty and the stress of that hour is almost like a boil that brings the painful inflammation of sin to a, to a, to a crescendo. So the answer will make sense when it comes. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, there's Jesus, what they call the Olivet Discourse. It's when Jesus answered their question, what will be the signs of your coming? And boy, how many books have been written? And uh, people have said, well, he's coming Friday. <laughs> and I just heard a recent one. There's another person putting a book out. You know, he's going to come by a... 2025 or 26, I thought, how ridiculous. How ridiculous. It's like these people that are experts in the Bible never bother reading the Bible, where it says, no one knows the hour of the season, but they can't help themselves. So Jesus did, however, give us signs. And in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus answers their question. It's amazing. They said, Lord, what will be the signs you're coming? And it was like, boom, it opened the door, and Jesus poured out two chapters. He spoke and spoke and said, this is what the world is going to be like as the world ramps up into an apocalyptic state before the return of the Lord. And he gives all of these signs and, and describes society and the nations. But after he describes the apocalypse leading up to the second coming, Jesus immediately continues the description by giving a number of parables that have the blessings and the warnings associated with Jesus' return. And a couple of them I'll mention to you. Um, one of them is the, the parable of the faithful steward in the master's house. And, and the Lord said, faithful is the steward who sets meat, sets food at the table of, of his fellow servants. Um, and when I come and I find him serving my people, his brethren, I will bless him. And so there's an there's a admonition to be faithful serving God's people because the Lord wants to find you as a faithful uh, person serving the people of God when he returns. Also concerning his return, he goes on to say, but if that servant becomes evil and says in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. In other words, he pushes Maranatha aside and he's like, He's not going to return in my lifetime, or I don't have anything to worry about. He takes his eye off, the, off of the return of the Lord, and he begins to take possession of the Lord's house, the Lord's ministry, for his own purpose. And he starts abusing the ministry and abusing God's people. He says, not a good idea. I am coming like a thief in the night, and when I come, I will cut that servant off. He'll end up in outer darkness. So there's a warning. Then Jesus immediately follows with the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins and the lamps, and about making sure you're 
Life is filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. Stay full, stay ready. The wise virgins, virgins were wise, not because they loved church, not because uh, uh, they were into church, but they were into the Lord's return. And it was the mo- specifically the motivation of the bridegroom is coming and I must keep oil in my lamp. The five, however, that were unwise, they took their eyes off of the Lord's return. And, they, it, and as a result, when, we, when the church takes its eyes off of Maranatha, staying full of the Holy, you'll, you'll notice there's a direct connection. When, when the church becomes more sensitive to the Lord's return, they start seeking the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The things of the Spirit become important. When they're not that important, we can live without the the power of the Holy Spirit. So those five virgins that that let their lamps go dry, guess what? They were rejected. They were not allowed in. And so that's that's an important warning. And then he followed the, the parable of the virgins with the parable of the talents. The Lord got his servants together. He gave each of them a certain amount of talents and he said, go multiply and do business. That's another message. He said, because I'm coming back. And what the Lord was saying is, you're accountable for what I give you in your life. To use it and employ it and gain, bring gain. So one of the things that is important, and I think Antonio touched on it when he opened up, is that our lives should be lived with gusto, should be lived with fullness. We should do what we do heartily as unto the Lord. A lazy, non-productive person who doesn't care, is apathetic, and buries their town in the backyard is not going to be rewarded when the Lord comes. In fact, at the return of Christ, he's going to be looking for people who are active. And those who hid out in fear and did nothing with the things that God gave them in life He's going to deal with them. And it says that he refers to that one who hid their talent as you wicked servant, and they're cast into outer darkness. Another warning concerning Jesus' return is that with the return of Jesus is going to come judgment. This is extremely important. Right now, the church is in a, is in a state of conflict over the entire subject of judgment. They've gotten confused with the the worldly argument over justice and social justice and what's right and what's wrong. But Jesus is the judge of all. And upon his return, judgment will be executed upon the earth. And, And that judgment, when I say judgment, doesn't only mean punishment for the evil and for the wicked. It also means bringing to light the things that have been distorted and covered over with lies and deceptions. They'll all be brought to the light. And so there are some warnings that Jesus gave as he continued in Matthew 25 about the coming judgment at his return. One of them I find really interesting was that the Bible says when Jesus returns, he will get all the nations will be gathered to him. Now, I don't want to get off into the weeds with a technical um, description about the uh, events, the Lord's rapture, the tribulation period of seven years, and then the se- actual second coming, um, because honestly, I don't think it really has a whole lot of bearing on the, the, the fact that we should just be living for his return. But at the, 
end of the tribulation when Jesus physically returns to the earth with the angels and with the, the saints of God that are with him as they leave the marriage supper of the Lamb and come to the earth and he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords to rule, hallelujah. When he comes, he's going to execute judgment. And the Bible says in Matthew 25, 31-46 that um, all the nations of the earth are going to be gathered to him and he's going to sort them out. And one of the things, one of the major criteria, the one that he put before everything else uh, that's going to be used to sort out the nations was, how did you treat my people? He didn't say, how did you treat people? How did you treat my people? I went back and studied it and looked at it. Jesus didn't say, what you've done to the least of the people of society you've done to me. We think that that means that those, those that are the least in society, we should raise them up and make them the most. And while that may be a good thing and the right thing to do, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, what you've done to the least of mine. Who are his? And I want to remind you that Jesus doesn't say, my people are the poor. Jesus said, my people are the ones who have received my blood for their atonement and have received my spirit, and they have made me Lord and the King of kings of their life. And that has nothing to do with how poor, how rich you are in this world. It has to do with whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You'll remember that Jesus was meeting in a Pharisee's house, and the, he was thronged with people, and out in the street, the house was surrounded with people, and one of his disciples came and said, your mother and your brothers are outside, and they want to have a word with you. Jesus responded to the disciple as he looked around the room at his disciples. He said, as he gestured, who are my mother and my brothers, but those here who are following me and doing the will of my Father in heaven. So I want you to think about that because Jesus said to the nations, how you treat those who are mine, even the least of those who are mine, will determine how you are judged. And those who were the sheep were invited into eternal life and those who were the goats. So it is not a good thing to be a nation or to be an individual or to be a society that persecutes and, re and rejects the church of Jesus Christ and the people of God. Not a good place to be in when Jesus returns. He also, concerning judgment, went on and he talked about the, the great Lord who made a great supper and invited all of his people. And then when the supper was ready, speaking of the return of the Lord, it's time to come and sup with him. The dinner's ready, Maranatha. It says all those that were invited begin to make excuses. Um, well, I've just bought an ox and I need to go train it. I, Another one, I've just bought a business and I, I need to you know, work on it. Or I just got married and I can't come. No reason, just I'm married, I can't come. But they all made excuses and the Lord was wroth, which we don't use that word wroth so much anymore. But I get the impression that wroth means he was very unhappy. And he said, go into the highways and hedges and compel anyone who wants to come. My doors are open. I am looking for people to come to me and share in my supper. Praise the Lord. 
we ought to be going out and inviting everybody. Um, sometimes we waste so much time with people who've been invited and it's just obviously they don't want to come. They just got more important things in life. You know, there's people that are out there dying because they don't know that Jesus is inviting them and we should be finding them and we should be inviting them to come in, praise the Lord. And Jesus said, none of those who were invited that couldn't bother themselves to come to me when I return will be allowed in. So there's definitely some things that will happen when Jesus returns. And finally, my final thought is that Maranatha mentality keeps you from striving and stressing and obsessing over unfair judgments. And I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying. All of us, to one extent or another, have been victims of being judged unfairly. We have experienced in society all kinds of different prejudices. We have experienced people who are corrupt, who execute uh, injustices, and, and we it touches our lives, it affects us, it influences us. And there's, there's a lot of anxiety about being overlooked. There's a lot of anxiety about being rejected unfairly. And so I take all of these things and I just summarize them and call them unfair judgments or unjust judgments. Jesus coming and being a Maranatha Christian will help you overcome the anxiety, the obsession, the stress over unfair judgments. And I'll give you a verse. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. When the Lord comes again, he will both bring to light the secret things that are now hidden in darkness and expose the secret aims, motives, and purposes of hearts. Then every man will receive his due commendation from God. So just because you have been a victim of unfair judgments and injustice, the case isn't closed till Jesus comes back. So please don't stress and obsess about it. If man rejects you, God has not overlooked your position. God has taken it into account. There's really probably no more dramatic illustration than Jesus. It's not a parable. He, he, he didn't say, I'm going to give you the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. He said there was a man named Lazarus and a rich man. And the Lazarus begged at the, 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 the door of the rich man, but the rich man never had any time for him and walked past him. And by and by, Lazarus died and was carried to the bosom of Abraham. But the rich man died and he was carried down into hell. And from hell, he sees Abraham and the rich man cries out. By the way, this is all before Jesus rose from the dead. So this is the, the Jewish model of where, where you went. Uh, when you died, but uh, Jesus took all the people from Abraham's bosom and they're in the presence of God right now. But he was down in hell and he cries out and he says, Lord, Father Abraham, um, let me warn my brothers that they don't come to this place. And he says, it's basically, it's too late. It's too late. You had good things in this life and you chose to not do good things with the good things that you had. Lazarus had dogs to lick his wounds and nobody to care. But he, for eternity, will live unencumbered. Justice will be measured out. 
and the Lord will never forget, never forget what we have gone through and what we need. And so don't be a Christian who stresses and obsesses over the rights and wrongs because when Jesus comes, everything wrong will be remembered. Everything right will be remembered. And the Lord Jesus will set all accounts right. And the, the Bible says, he that has this hope in him will purify himself. You won't find yourself striving and clawing at an unjust world, trying to make that world recognize you and give you what you think you need because you'll get it from Jesus who is just. And he is coming. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. In fact, the Bible closes in the 22nd chapter of Revelation with, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his work. Awesome. James said it like this, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Close your Bible and stand with me this morning.